New Life Church, please stand as we worship this morning.
morning. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Chris. Glad to see you back helping us in worship. Kenny, good morning. So glad they're here too. Good morning, everyone. My name is Coonrad Bugelink, and I am going to be your service host this morning. Special welcome to guests who are here in person or online. We're glad that you're here joining with us this morning. Our aim is to help you connect in community so that you, as a guest, are... Uh, you feel at home in this place, and so this morning you're invited to fill out a Connect card, which should be in the seat pocket in front of you, and you can put that into one of the collection boxes uh, this morning, or at the um, when we have our time of fellowship, you can bring it to the info booth, and there's a gift bag with some Honduran coffee in there for you as well. Um, if you are joining us online this morning, welcome, glad that you're joining us, and uh, if you would like to, uh, we'd love to connect with you as well, so if you just type into the comment section. Someone, the service uh, host, will connect with you as well. So welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, all of this connect conversation that we have at the beginning of the service is to remind us that we are a community that walks together, walks through life together. And so I was just reflecting on what community means for us at New Life and my wife and I and our kids. Well, my wife and I have been attending uh, New Life for pretty close to 30 years. And uh, it's been a community that we've been able to walk through the highs and the lows of life together um, to remind ourselves of how um, together we can hold our lives open before the Lord and be transformed as individuals, but as members of a community together. And we've been so blessed to be able to have members of this community that our kids call uncle and aunt and their kids call us, uncle and aunt, and uh, there's something incredible about that. And I think post-COVID, we need to continually remind ourselves of the beauty and the gift of community. And that's what all of that is about, the Connect card, the checking in online, is to bring us deeper and deeper into community. I'm so grateful for our life groups uh, that we have at New Life as well. So if you want to get connected into a life group, a community that does life together, um, just connect with Pastor Sean, or just send an email to the office as well. Kids, it is spring break really soon. Five more days of school. There's no clapping? Yeah. I think the louder claps are probably from the teachers in the uh, <coughs> congregation. So, um, Spring break is an excellent time to just um, have different schedules, and maybe some of you have things that are planned, and that'll be awesome. Uh, during spring break, uh, we're going to take a break from Kids Church as well, so for the Sundays of March tw uh, 12th, 19th, and the 26th, we're going to let our 
uh, regular Kids Church volunteers also enjoy their spring break, and so there will be activity sheets for you. The kids will join us in the services, and the activity sheets will be um, probably in a nice little treasure chest over here, and you can grab those during the fellowship time uh, as well. Every Sunday, we have fellowship time as part of our worship, and so we would love to um, ask you just to connect. This is an opportunity for parents to bring their kids to Little Lights and Kids Church as well, so we'll have a five-minute fellowship time. You can feel free to grab some coffee. This will be a time for you to greet one another with the peace of Christ. Um, <clears throat> kids who are uh, between three and five years old are going to go to a program downstairs called Little Lights, and kids grades uh, one to five can go downstairs to Kids Church, and they can use the door on my right. And if your children haven't been checked in yet, you can find a um, Kids Church volunteer and they'll help you sign your kids in as well. Uh, we're going to step into this uh, fellowship time in a moment and if you want something to talk about over the fellowship time you can ask each other what you are going to do for spring break and it's also Steve Bransma's birthday today so during the fellowship time you can say happy birthday to Steve Bransma who's 40 today. So let's start our fellowship time today. Is a faithful. 
All right. Some of you over the break were confused because I had said Steve was 40 and you thought I was being literal, but um, I wasn't. Steve's not 40. Thought I'd clarify that. <clears throat> All right, we have a few announcements. Uh, the first is that there is a worship night tonight. The Churches of New Life Church and Mission Hills are hosting a worship night tonight at 6.30 p.m., at Rosegate Farms in Matsqui. So the address is 33775 Ave. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, so don't come to New Life Church. It's not here. It's not at Mission Hills. It's at Rosegate Farms. We're looking forward to seeing you out there as we draw near to God in worship. The building that we're going to be gathering in is heated, but it may be open to the outside depending on attendance. And we hope that there's lots of people there. So we hope that the barn doors are open. You may want to bring an extra coat. Please bring your own lawn chair. I'm just thinking about where mine are in the garage right now. I have to, like, actually dust them off and move a whole pile of things. But it's totally worth it. So get your lawn chairs and come on out tonight. Um, and uh, if you miss the street address, you'll be able to uh, see that online if you go to newlifecrc.ca slash events. Seniors lunch. Awkward pause waiting for certain people to think, am I a senior? Um, just a reminder to those who are 65 plus, ah, uh, we have a senior's lunch after church today upstairs in room 303. Uh, but um, we're, we live in such, we're, we're part of such a gracious community. I would just say if you are Steve's age or older, you should just go to the senior's lunch. Oh, all right. Okay, I'm sorry, buddy. I'll stop now. Okay, uh, this morning we are collecting our offering, and our offering today is for New Life Church. Here at New Life Church, we're all about experiencing the love of Jesus and sharing it with people around us, inside of these walls, outside of these walls, and that looks like love in action. God always blesses us with the resources to carry out this ministry with your faithful giving. And the Board of Elders wants to give us an update on our financial situation, so I'm going to invite Bernie Heising to come forward this morning as well. Thanks, Kuhn. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Bernie Heising, and um, I'm a, I serve on the Board of Elders. Uh, I'm also the treasurer for the church, and so I... Uh, you know, keep a fairly close uh, look on, you know, what's happening in the finances of the church. So this, this morning, I want to take a few minutes to provide you an update with our, uh, where our budget is at for this fiscal year. Our, our fiscal year runs from September through uh, August, and um, if I could have this slide up, um, that would be great. Um, what, what you see um, is uh, back in June of last year, we approved a, a budget of $907,000. And of that amount, we uh, you know, plan to receive 890000 from uh, the people here who are in this auditorium and who call this church their home church. Um, to the end of February, we've received almost 450000 Now, those of you who are quick with math might think, well, we're six months through the year, and 450000 that's like 50%. Um, so everything appears to be tracking as expected. Um, except 
um, we uh, traditionally have in, in December that we receive significantly more than uh, what we get in other months of the year. And last December, we received 138,000 um, compared to uh, an average amount of 62,000 per month for the other five months. Now, if we you know, project forward and, and if we only receive 62,000 uh, per month for the, for the next six months, we're gonna end up with a shortfall of 68,000. Now, one, one reaction to this might be, hey, we just need to cut expenses to, uh, so that our expenses align with our revenue. And while we might be forced to do that eventually, do note that when we cut expenses, we're not just cutting dollars, we're cutting ministry. Um, any, any cuts of that significance are going to impact the ministry we're able to do as a church here. And, uh, you know, as, we, as a board, we believe that, you know, having a well-maintained facility and a staff team that is passionate about and seeks hard after the heart of Jesus is, is key to our vision of touching lives with the transforming love of Jesus. So as a board, cutting expenses is not our preferred solution to this challenge that we face. Thus, as I stand up here this morning, I want to let you know there exists a real need for an increase in contributions to our church budget. If we want to get back on track for the budget, we need to receive over 73000 uh, per month over the next six months to uh, basically make our budget for the year. Now, 68000 may seem like a lot of money when we think in terms of our personal finances, but let's instead think of it as 68 $1,000 bills. What if God is calling 68 of us to contribute 1000 and perhaps in the case of some couples, maybe $2,000, and, and for some maybe even more than that, but, and this is important, above what we currently give to support the uh, church budget. And while we don't give to get a tax receipt, keep in mind that because of the way income tax credits are factored in in this country, that gift of $1,000 may only cost you somewhere in the range of five to $700, depending on your tax situation. So while at first glance, that 68,000 number looks large, if we break it down, and look at this as a combined effort of a community of believers trying to be agents of change in Abbotsford, then that 68,000 doesn't look quite as large. As a board and finance team, we do realize that some of you are facing significant financial pressures with, with the more recent inflationary costs in groceries, fuel, and mortgage interest rates. And, and some of you in that situation will be challenged to help. But I also think if we are honest with ourselves, there are many of us who, if we gave an additional $1,000 above what we, what we already give to the church, that contribution would not significantly impact our current lifestyle. But it would certainly bless the ministry of new life. Some of you may be thinking, don't look at me to be part of those 68, but I want to raise the question, what if God is looking at you? Now, I can't say that with integrity without walking the talk, and so I am letting you know that Kathy and I will be two of the 68. When Nathan spoke last month on giving as part of the Resolve series, he reflected on the four points. Giving reflects God's image. God is a giving God, and many of you can testify to God's faithfulness to you in, in the gifts he's given you. And in a few weeks, we will remember the ultimate gift that... Uh, 
God gave to us, and that was putting his son on the cross. And another point was giving increase our trust in God. Picking key, key phrases from Malachi 3, verses 8 to 10. In tithes and offerings, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. The third point was giving encourages us to work with God. We are partners in ministry in, in Abbotsford through the staff and volunteers at New Life Church. And, and the final point was giving focuses our priorities for God. Helps us to determine what's important in our walk with God so, we, that, are, so that we are not distracted by all the desires present in society. And if you didn't have you know, a chance to hear that sermon uh, at the beginning of February, I would say, um, I would suggest you uh, go look it up online and uh, you know listen to it. And maybe for some of us, we need to hear it again. So if you have a passion and a heart for the ministry of new life, here is an opportunity over the next few months in a real practical way to live out what Nathan was referring to in his message on giving. I want to end with acknowledging and thanking you for your faithfulness in, in the past, giving to new life and supporting the ministry here. And my hope and prayer is that you will understand what our current need is and that you will prayerfully consider the challenge that God has placed before you. Thank you. Thank you, Bernie. Thanks, Bernie, for the update, and thank you, Board of Elders, for serving New Life Church so well. We're going to pray for the offering uh, for New Life Church, and then the band will come back as well, and then as we... Uh, sing, there'll be an opportunity for you to give your gifts, and you can bring your gifts to the offering boxes here at the front, or you can open your phones and you can give electronically, and uh, the ways to do that are also uh, on the screen as well. Let's spend some time praying for the offering this morning. Lord, I thank you for this place, for a community of believers gathered. Thank you, Lord, for the elders. We thank you, Lord, for the deacons who lead and guide this church, the board, the vision for ministry. We thank you, Lord, for all the ministry that takes place to bless not just the people gathered here inside of these walls, but ministry that uh, pushes outside of these walls into the community. Lord, I thank you for all the ways that you have blessed us financially and called us to steward uh, those financial blessings well. Thank you, Lord, for um, our leaders who steward those, those resources for the church. Lord, we've heard the appeal this morning, and I pray, Lord, your spirit would uh, just let us know and show us ways that we can give and support through finances, through time, and through all the blessings that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, that we have been in places like this before and seen your faithfulness and your goodness in this community. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us, your sacrifice for us, your gifts, all the resources. Thank you, Lord, for salvation, the ultimate gift. Thank you, Lord, that we are in this together as a community. You are so good, God. We ask, Lord, for your blessing on the ministries of this place as leaders are making personal connections with children, youth, young adults, adults, and seniors. Lord, may those connections be connections that turn all our hearts towards you. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for this place. In your name we pray. And everybody together said, Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship? Sing of his faithfulness this morning. For 
God, you are indeed faithful. You're not a God who just calls us to be faithful, but you are a God who is faithful to us. And I've shown that over and over again in our lives and in the lives of many that have gone before us. And so, God, we come before you, before your word. Um, we ask that you would speak to us this day. 
Holy Spirit, would you come and teach us from the words that you have inspired Matthew to write, witnessing of who Jesus is and what he has done. Teach us and transform us in our hearts through the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, New Life. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. It's my privilege to share with you God's word this morning. Um, as you all know, we're currently in the season of Lent. And Lent is a season leading up to Easter where we seek to be mindful of the life and death of Jesus Christ. And to help with this, we're going through a sermon series called Portraits of a Savior, where we look at different portraits of Jesus as presented in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, Pastor Nathan preached on the portrait of Jesus as glorious by looking at Matthew 17, where the story of Jesus' transfiguration is told. Today, we will look at the portrait of Jesus as servant. What would the portrait of Jesus as servant look like? How does Matthew portray Jesus as servant? Now, in order to create any, tr- truly appreciate the, the work of art, we must spend time to look closely. So, we'll be looking at the portrait of Jesus presented in Matthew closely in detail. It may feel at times too detailed and technical, but when we get through it, hopefully it would help you appreciate how rich Matthew's portrait of Jesus as servant is. So, without further ado, let's dive in together. Our passage is from Matthew chapter 20, 20, verses 20 to 28. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. I'll be reading from the NIV. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we have read in our passage, Matthew draws us in to a conversation that happens between Jesus and a mother whose two sons are part of Jesus' 12 disciples. According to the parallel passage recounting the same story in Mark 10, we find that the names of these two sons are James and John, whom we have also heard about last week as they, together with Peter, were part of the three who witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. In this conversation, the mother begins by politely asking Jesus, as indicated by Matthew's comment, that she knelt 
before him. She asks that her two sons be seated, seated next to Jesus in his kingdom. She says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. To this, Jesus replies, you don't know what you're asking. Then Jesus asks the two sons this question, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And by cup, Jesus means the suffering and death that he will soon face when they reach Jerusalem, which Jesus just mentioned immediately in the passage right before our passage today. In verses 17 to 19, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The two sons reply, we can indeed drink the cup that you're going to drink. Now, given their immediate and confident answer, many New Testament scholars believe that these two sons didn't fully understand what Jesus is referring to, nor did they bother asking him to clarify what he meant. They were all too eager for the position of prominence. Jesus responds that they will indeed drink his cup, but to grant them where they sit in the kingdom is not up to him, but it belongs to God the Father. Hearing this conversation, the other ten disciples become indignant, and rightfully so. After all, they all probably wanted the same thing. And they got annoyed that James and John beat them to it. To be seated on either side of Jesus would have meant the most exalted position of importance as it would mean number two and number one and two in the kingdom next to Jesus. After spending all this time with Jesus, the disciples were still living out of the values of this world. Knowing their hearts, Jesus calls them together, gathers, him, gathers them around him, and turns it into a teachable moment. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus reminds his disciples that those in position of authority in the world abuse their power to benefit themselves. But not so with you, says Jesus. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Instead of seeking to move up the ladder to exercise dominance over others, the disciples of Jesus must actually go down the ladder to serve, to be a servant if they want to be great, to be a slave if they want to be first. During Jesus' time, servants and slaves were not desirable positions by any means. The word servant comes from the Greek word diakonos, from which we get the English word deacons. Literally, it was a word used to refer to a servant who was bound to and performed tasks for his or her master. It also referred to those who waited at tables, for those reclining reclining at the tables to eat. Slaves during Jesus' time were regarded as being on the lower level of humanity. They were considered to be the same class as immobile property, having no rights as individuals and not allowed to own anything because after because everything the slave owned were considered to be the property of their master Jesus tells his disciples 
that this is what they must be if any of them want to be great or be first among them. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. Because this is what he came to do, to serve. Those who want to be great and first must be servants, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. After all, Jesus was the one who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of servant being made in human likeness, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. So how did Jesus serve? Let's return to, to what he says in our passage. He says in verse 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Although in the English translation it appears that Jesus is saying there are two things he came to do, first to serve and second to give his life as a ransom, Jesus is actually saying one thing. In biblical Greek, the conjunction and is usually used to connect two different things in a sentence like Jesus and his disciples. But sometimes the conjunction and could also be used to further amplify what precedes it. This is how it's being used in verse 28 of our passage. So a better translation of the verse 28 would be, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, that is, to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus came to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. Yes, he healed the sick. Yes, he, feed the, he fed the hungry. He cast out demons. He taught. He did all these things, and they can be understood as a form of service done by Jesus. But the portrait that Jesus is painting for himself in the Gospel of Matthew is that of a servant who gives his life as a ransom for many. But how could giving his life as a ransom be, for many be a way of serving? Perhaps some of you are like me and wondering how Jesus dying is connected to serving. When someone serves, he or she takes on a function on behalf of someone else being served. In other words, those who serve perform a function for the benefit of someone else who wants that task fulfilled much like a waiter or a server at a restaurant who takes orders from the patron and shares it with the kitchen and brings the food back to the patron when it's ready. So there is, in a sense, a substitutionary nature to serving. Instead of the patron walking over to the kitchen, him or herself, to ask for food and then bringing it back to the table to eat, the server or waiter serves by performing all these tasks on their behalf of the patron, on, the, on behalf of the patron. One theologian describes serving in this way, for every service has vicarious, that is, substitutionary character. By recognizing a need in the person served, that apart from the service, the person would have to satisfy for himself. All this to say that Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many is a way of serving, because Jesus fulfills in our place what we cannot accomplish ourselves. Not that we asked him to, or that we were even aware of our need for help. 
But it was God himself who knew our need, specifically our need for salvation and redemption, and sent Jesus, his son, to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many, thereby accomplishing what no human being could ever accomplish except for Jesus himself. So what need is Jesus meeting by giving his life as a ransom? What does it mean that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many? The Greek word ransom only occurs twice in the New Testament. Once in Matthew chapter 20, 28, which is our verse today. And second, in Mark 10, which is the peril passage to this story that we just read. Ransom refers to the money that was paid for the release of slaves. A ransom was paid in exchange for slaves' freedom. By using this word, Jesus is saying that his life is the price he pays for the release of many. Jesus gives his life in exchange for the freedom of many. Release and freedom from what? From the judgment of God and our bondage to sin. In the beginning, when God created Adam, he told him that he could eat from everything in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After telling him not to eat from that, God tells Adam, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. As many of you know, Adam and Eve both ate from the tree and was punished for their transgression. The Bible tells us that sin came to be present in all of humanity as a consequence of their transgression. It says in Romans chapter 5, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Also in Isaiah chapter 53, it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. One of our confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism, summarizes our predicament quite well. The fall, that is the fall of humanity through Adam and Eve's sin, has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in a sinful condition. Because of the sin we're born with, as well as the sins we commit, all of humanity stands under God's judgment. And there's nothing we could do to pardon ourselves from God's judgment. Not only that, no human being is able to free themselves from the bondage of sin and evil. In other words, we're utterly helpless in our sinful nature and our condition unless something or someone helps us. Enter Jesus. In verse 28 of our passage, the Greek word anti translated in the English as for means doing something on behalf of or in the place of someone. So when Jesus says that he came to serve by giving his life for many, it means that he came to give his life in the place of many or on behalf of many. In other words, Jesus giving his life for many means that he came to give his life as our substitute, to give his life as a ransom in the place of the lives of many who will believe in his name and be saved. As it says in Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. And also in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we, you have been healed. When Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom, it mean, he means that he came to give his life as a substitute. To be a substitute means that one comes to supply another's need or to discharge his or her obligation so that the other no longer has to carry the load himself or herself. Indeed, Jesus came and gave his life so that we no longer have to carry the load of bearing the wrath and judgment of God that was rightfully due for us because of our sins. Because Jesus gave his life as a ransom, we're released from our bondage to sin so that we no longer have to live under the oppression of sin in our lives. Because Jesus gave his life as a ransom, all those who believe in him and receive all that he's accomplished on the cross are forgiven. They're liberated and they're reconciled and adopted as God's children. Now you might be wondering, if Jesus had to give his life as a ransom, if Jesus gave his life as a ransom, to whom is the ransom paid? Certainly not to Satan, nor is it to us. The ransom is paid to God to pacify his wrath. When we speak of God's wrath, we do not mean this unpredictable, bad-tempered, and self-serving anger that is evident in the gods of ancient Greek myths. It's not like human anger that is often spiteful, resentful, or sometimes even childish. When we speak of God's wrath, we speak in connection to God's holiness. Specifically, as the New Bible Dictionary put it, God's wrath is a function of his holiness, which is expressed in the demands of God's moral law, be holy because I'm holy. And it's also a function of his righteousness, which is expressed in God's acts of judgment and reward. As one theologian put it, God's wrath is God's holy revulsion, disgust against that which is the contradiction of his holiness which issues in a positive outgoing of the divine displeasure. You may have heard of God's wrath as his righteous anger, which a well-known theologian, J.I. Packer, put it, the right reaction of moral perfection in the creator toward moral perversity in the creature. Unlike human anger, God's anger is a demonstration of his goodness and justice. After all, if God did not get angry at moral perversity, God would not be just. For God to not be angry towards sin and to not punish all wrongdoing, the penalty it deserves would mean that justice is not found in God and that he's not righteous. But I thought God is all good and loving, one might say. Yes, he is. God is good and loving. And he is also holy and just. And for this good and loving God to not get angry toward moral perversity or punish sin and evil would mean that he is not. He's neither good or loving. So why all this talk about God's wrath when it's much pleasant, much more pleasant to talk about God's love? Because God's love 
is amplified all the more when we talk about God's wrath. Even though God's justice required that we be punished for our sin, in his mercy and grace, he also knew that no creature could ever bear the weight of his eternal wrath against sin. So, he sent his one and only son to bear the weight of his wrath and punishment for sin on our behalf. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Not that Jesus the Son was coerced by God the Father, but Jesus willingly submitted himself to the will of God by offering his life. God is not some cruel father who demanded payment for our sin from his own son. Jesus was willing and was in unison with the will of God the Father. He willingly submitted. He willingly gave. Jesus said when no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down on his own accord. By giving his life on the cross, Jesus serves the many. By giving his life as a ransom in our place, thereby paying the price for our sin on our behalf with his life to free us from the bondage of sin and evil. In giving his life as a ransom, not only did Jesus blot out our sin, but he made peace with God, our creator, by pacifying the wrath of God in his death on the cross so that we receive pardon for our sins. Through his death on the cross, Jesus reconciled us with God, turning enmity into intimacy and gave many who believe in his name the right to be God's children. Yes, through the cross there is victory over spiritual powers and authorities. And yes, through the cross God's love for sinners is demonstrated. But these are all possible because Jesus gave his life as a ransom. This is why the essence of atonement is Christ's substitution. And this substitution is a demonstration of how, of how he serves. He serves by taking our place to observe the punishment that was rightfully due for us and dies the death that we were supposed to die so that we might live. <clears throat> At the beginning of the sermon, I asked the question, what would the portrait of Jesus as servant look like? What would the portrait of Jesus as servant look like? The portrait of Jesus as servant looks like the cross. The cross is the portrait of Jesus as servant, as it is the ultimate place where he served by doing what we could not ever do for ourselves, dying in our place, taking our punishment, and the wrath of God do for our sin upon himself so that all those who believe in his name might no longer live in condemnation but in freedom and be given a brand new life as his children. Hallelujah. What a good news indeed. Amen. Let's respond to God in gratitude through song as the worship team leads us in this next song. Please stand.
you go from this place, receive these words of God as your benediction. You want to bless the congregation with me? All right, let's do it. Okay. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Bless you and go in peace.